1: A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film and content specialist Cam Maitland and writer and pop culture expert Sidney Urbanek. It's always a big event when a music star makes the crossover into film. Sometimes it goes so well, it gets hazy on which career came first. Now, for me, I think of people like Will Smith or J-Lo. But sometimes, it's just not going to happen for that person in that medium. But don't worry, music stars. There's plenty of actors who tried their hand in a music career where it didn't go so hot either. Now, today, we're going to look at movies that feature two of the biggest music stars in the world in acting roles. But before we do that, Sydney, do you think music stars face a public bias before they hit the screen that they have to overcome? like there's already like a mire around it? Oh, 100%. I mean,
2: there are are a few things at work there simultaneously. One of them is that these sorts of films are often perceived as like star vehicles and nothing more. Um, And one of the interesting things about uh, Desperately Seeking Susan is that it picked up that narrative uh, because of the very weird, some might say lucky, timing of its release, but it Mm -hmm. hadn't been the original goal. Um, You know, To be like let's get madonna in a movie there are lots of movies like that where you know mtv films will say okay we need to put britney spears in a movie let's make crossroads so um, there's this air of that kind of thing to begin with but then you know the other component is that it's been so hit or miss historically so um they are you know pop musicians starring in films is like a box office dream scenario regardless of like talent um because of the way that they loop (laughs) fan bases in and um of course you're seeing that play out right now in a more modern context with like the world of pop star documentaries um Mm. everyone's getting one many of them are bad but it doesn't matter (laughs) because they you know netflix got that many more subscribers for that exclusive but you know um the star in question isn't always a natural actor when it comes to Mm. narrative film. So, you know, sometimes it goes, not great. Tony Bennett tried to do it at one point and the response was awful. Beyonce (laughs) has had hits and misses, um, where a lot of it, I'd say comes back to the quality of the scripts and whatnot. Mariah Carey has had hits and misses. (laughs) Um, and then meanwhile, like David Bowie, Lady Gaga and certain other artists are very natural actors and like much more comfortable seemingly in that movie star role. Um, So you never really know what you're going to get. And for that reason you get
1: um, audiences and critics alike being more, Skeptical, perhaps going in. Well, I even go back to classic Hollywood and I think of someone like Frank Sinatra and that's like a real chicken and egg scenario for me because like I know he started out as like a pop star crooner or like the pop star of the day um, but then he's in like the Manchurian Candidate, right? So he's in these actual prestige films and his acting career is excellent. So it's interesting that they've been doing this for a long time but who it works for and who it doesn't is always interesting. It seems to me that rappers and hip-hop artists also find more success doing this because often they're already playing a persona of themselves which they're just translating onto film sure
2: there's definitely i think a relationship between the stars that are really you know natural video artists and take that part of their careers seriously um aka the people that i write about predominantly (laughs) and the people who do farewell um in the movie space, in like the traditional movie sense. But, you know, it's not always a perfect match, like Madonna in particular is a good example of it not always being as perfect
1: a match as you mm. might think. Yeah. Madonna is interesting. We think of her as always having been around, but we don't realize, especially for a younger generation, how meteoric her rise actually was. Like, she was nothing, and then she was everything, and then continued to be everything, basically, up until this point. So she kind of got thrown into the deep end of acting, where all of a sudden she was starring opposite, like, her... Husband At the time, Sean Penn, who was one of the biggest actors in the world uh, across one of the biggest acting dynasties with Patricia Arquette in this film. Right. So immediately she's tossed into like the big leagues.
0: Yeah. I also think a forgotten thing that we love to talk about that might not be as much your bag, Sydney, is like that. A lot of actors are sometimes failed pop stars, and that is just mm. totally swept under the rug. So somebody like Tracy Ullman. We talked about Victor Garber. Victor Garber had a '60s folk band that was on Ed Sullivan that didn't oh, take wow. off. I didn't know any of this. I
1: didn't know that. Yeah. Again. Oh, who was it? We brought up during summer. T- Rupert Everett. Rupert uh, Everett. Yeah, was one, Rupert too.
0: Everett tried to transition. He was an actor first, but then when he kind of hit the skids, uh, mostly for being openly gay, he had like a pop star face that didn't go anywhere and i think that actors can get away with that and it like doesn't sully them at all or like yeah jennifer connelly we talked about she was she was kind of down that path in japan weirdly she was like a model slash pop star that then reluctantly was like i guess i'll try acting uh, and then those <laughs> weird CDs just get tossed away.
1: But there's also this interesting grab at the foreign market. So I think mm-hmm. about Edward Furlong's Japanese release where it's... Uh, it is. If, <laughs> I if, didn't if, know if, that one. I,
0: oh, <laughs> that, my that friend, you need, okay. to,
1: you need to go have yeah. a look at this when you have a moment. Not that Edward Furlong requires any more um, issues in his life, sure. we'll say that. However, that recording is quite fascinating yeah. and an interesting look at like... Uh, because, of course, he was like the biggest heart heartthrob. He was massive in Japan. So they were like, how do we capitalize on this? We have him sing a bunch of really cutesy songs as his voice is changing, and this was not a man who was born to sing. So it's it's really, it's worth your time. It's quite fascinating. There's also that weird subcategory
2: where the artist just really wants to be a star, and mm. they have both sets of skills, but it's the music that works out first, but they wanted to mm. act the whole time. And so Lady Gaga is one of those, where like sure. she'd been on the Sopranos and she'd been studying theater and that's where she thought she was headed and happened to just be like singing in, in like the New York bar and cabaret scene. And then that ended up working out first. But um, Madonna is one of those people who grew up being like thinking she was either going to be a nun or a movie star, as I think the quote (laughs) she's, she said before. So this was always where she hoped she'd be headed. Um, It's just that by the time it happens, she was already starting to be Madonna,
1: the pop star. Mm. Well, the reverse is true um, for someone like Johnny Depp, because Johnny Depp started out wanting to be a rock star, and then in L- and that wasn't going for him in L.A., and he was hanging out with his buddy, Nicolas Cage, who was like, well, if you want to make some money, why don't you become an actor, you know, just to make a bit of cash on the side till the rock and roll thing takes off, and, you know, we see how that went. Mm. Yeah.
2: yeah, I mean, even lots of actors who you, you might not even realize are musicians, unless you know, like... Jason Schwartzman being, you know, in Phantom Planet or, you know, Jared Leto with 30 Seconds to Mars. Ryan Gosling had that
1: band. I don't, yeah, know, I don't know if he still has it. Choir. Dead, dead Man's Bows. Right. Yeah, yeah. Dead Man's Bows. It was that good. Was it, it was a good yeah.
0: album. I don't it know. Was, I'm not was. mad at it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's weird. I saw
1: them at, I saw them downtown at, uh, in the, oh, wow. uh, the ball, was it the ballroom in Vancouver? It was a very good show. They okay. were excellent. Most people were there because it was Ryan Gosling. Sure. It was, it was fun and creepy. And, <laughs> and a bunch
0: of children. Yeah. Weird. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It, it's a thing. Uh, but it, it, like, lies we'll talk about. I think it works. When it works, it works well, and uh, there's a, a charisma you can bring to a movie with somebody who works in a different medium, for sure.
1: All right, well, let's get into our first movie. So when Broadway legend Patti LuPone was asked on Watch What Happens Live, my new favorite source for interviews, on how she felt about Madonna's turn as Avida, which was a role she originated, she called Madonna a movie killer. She also said that the only time she ever met Madonna, Madonna looked her up and down and said, I'm taller than you, and then walked away. Now, Rosie O'Donnell defended Madonna in the very next episode, but of course, Rosie appeared with Her Majesty in one of her best roles, A League of Their Own. It's true her film career has been more downs than ups, critically, but I don't think that it can be debated that her first top-billed role in Desperately Seeking Susan is one she was born to play. The fashion, the attitude, and, of course, the soundtrack, all pure Madonna. Where do you think this ranks in her pantheon of performances, Sydney?
2: It's definitely up there. Um, I mean, Patty Lupone hated Evita, and I don't even remotely <laughs> begrudge her that yeah. because obviously there's a story. Um, I think Madonna is great in Evita. All things considered, there was baggage behind that film and that shoot and that role because Madonna sort of inserted herself into the role in a way that made it supercharged. Um, mm. the whole experience of being in that movie, and that's a separate conversation too. Um, <laughs> but when I watch it, I'm not able to watch it without that context. So I find it to be like a pretty mm. interesting performance. But you know, yes. her best among fans, her best performances tend to be like Evita, probably Dick Tracy. Um, and then I would argue that Desperately Seeking Susan's somewhere in the top three, uh, A League of Their Own probably also up there, but, um, I find I'm always forgetting how small her role in that movie actually is. Like, relatively speaking, it's really she's much more
1: of an ensemble in that role than she is like the big draw the big Mm. box office draw. She's well cast in that movie though. Like that's, I think the ones that she's best in are the ones where it's some aspect of her persona that the world knows her as. And like playing the, the shameless hussy in a league of their own is exactly how we know her. And she plays it well. Cause that's how, when you watch her in interviews, that's how she plays with interviewers, right? It's very smart. And the best like pop stars in movie roles
2: tend to be ones where there is some kind of like meta commentary happening. Um on the topic of, like, their star persona, their life. You know, even if you're thinking of something like Dream Girls, which was, of course, like, an existing mm-hmm. show, but where Beyoncé is the girl group member who strikes out on mm-hmm. her own and becomes much more famous than these other ones. Like, that's obviously something she did on purpose. Um, But, you know, with, yeah, with A League of Their Own, I always think about that scene where she's, like, um, she confesses, like, in the church, and then the priest is, like... Uh, totally scandalized by whatever she said and she sort of <laughs> smirks and walks away like that's that's like Madonna in a nutshell especially like mm-hmm. peak cultural peak Madonna like um, mid 80s to mid 90s that's when she was you know she says I think it was 1984 when she's like I'm gonna rule the world and for 10 years she did Very much exactly that. Well, before
1: we get too much into her, because I know we're going to talk more about like where she was at this and the career thing, like she had an explosion in two different ways, which was really interesting. Uh, Sydney, can you just give us like a brief plot summary for people who haven't seen it yet?
2: Desperately Seeking Susan is the story of two different, very different women, Um, I guess. So one is in New Jersey and one is in New York City. Um, In New Jersey, we have Roberta, who is a housewife, who, you know, reads self-help novels and she knocks things over. She's (laughs) pretty unhappy. um, And she's obsessed with following the exploits of this stranger, Susan, um, in like the personals section of the paper. And that becomes, uh, she travels to try and spy on a meeting that Susan's going to have with Jimmy. In a mix-up, because Roberta's sort of obsessed with Susan, um, where she ends up buying her jacket, being mistaken for her, and then hitting her head and losing her memory. (laughs) It's a very bonkers plot, (laughs) especially on paper. Um, And then the second half of the film is basically about, on one side, uh, Susan, who's linked up with Roberta's husband, trying to track down actual Roberta who thinks she's Susan and is being called Susan while she goes off on a whole other like subplot (laughs) where she's helping a magician do tricks and um,
1: <laughs> yeah. dot 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 is that is yeah, that something like uh, yeah summary? it does yeah, yeah. Okay. It's,
0: it's a it's a crazy plot to be fair yeah yeah
1: it doesn't surprise me that this is a script that was started out a completely different place and then when it was purchased by um, actually two independent female filmmaker or female producers which was of course was unusual at the time they were like all right how do we then spin this and be able to sell it to a studio so they will give us money to do it so the original script was that it was um, a, a like more of a character study, like a quiet character study of a woman kind of in turmoil in the suburbs of New Jersey in her 30s, which, you know, you can see the bones.
0: I did not know that. That is wild. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Totally.
1: So that's that's what it started out as. And then they were, at that point, names like Diane Keaton were getting thrown mm. around. They thought maybe Cher would be interested, things like that. And then they were like, well, no, we need to skew younger. And that's when they brought on Patricia Arquette. And they were kind of like, Pushing around to be like, okay, is there going to be maybe someone who can have a cachet or a draw? And I guess Madonna was like her next door neighbor and uh, like Susan Seidelman's next door neighbor and was like, yeah, I keep hearing things about her and I've seen her play at Dance and she's great. Maybe we can try her out. So that happens. So then they started rewriting and retooling the script to be younger and more quirky. So it is what you think it is now. So it went through like probably 15, 20 rewrites. So there's a reason it's a little all over the place. Um, But that also very much suits Susan Seidelman's style, which is also wonderful and a little bit all over the place and very quirky. Yeah. Um, And of course, the other big change that happened was it went from being a rated
2: R movie to being a PG-13 movie so that all of these fans that Madonna was picking up on MTV could actually, you know, come and see it and very crucially pay to come and see it. Um, <laughs> and so there were still lots of last minute changes happening while they were shooting. Like it's, it sounds like it was a very um, sort of by the seat of one's pants kind of production, um, which stresses me out to think about, but that's yeah. for another yeah. time. <laughs> it's very weird. Yeah.
0: Cause it, I mean, you talked about that. It's it's when it started, she was like a, a woman who had a video on MTV when they started shooting. And by the time, even before they finished shooting, she was so famous. That they had to have like security guards and stuff, but the weird thing is, is with all of this, uh, Susan Seidelman and everyone involved seems pretty pleased with the final product, which is kind of interesting because it 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 is kind of a like neither this nor that movie where you're like this is a comedy that's not very funny but like it's a cool anthropological study of downtown new york in the mid 80s but it's also like and madonna's great in it but you're also like i don't really know what her character is doing she's just kind of hanging out and being madonna yeah it's a very bizarre film but that everyone seems proud of and and was critically acclaimed in weird ways because Susan Seidelman was big in Europe Mm -hmm. so like Roseanne Arquette got a BAFTA and it was nominated for Cesar Awards and stuff which is a bit insane
1: well, one of my favorite things is that Pauline Kale referred to Madonna as an indolent, trampy goddess. And I do not know if that is a compliment or not. I think, I think coming from is. Pauline yeah. Kale it is. Yeah. So, yeah, I love it. Indolent, trampy goddess. That feels like something I have to say when I'm in my cups next mm. and I'm angry at someone. Sure. I, think, I think it kind of like it becomes a compliment at the end, you know, and then you're like, yes. okay, yeah. that's classic,
2: you know, chef's kiss. <laughs> classic Kale where she was never going to like just outright compliment you. Yeah. You know, and I think that's a really good one. If I if
1: I were Madonna, I would think, perfect, exactly what I was going for, you know?
0: Yeah. It- well,
1: speaking of Madonna, where was she at this point in her career? So we mentioned like things had to change fast in order to accommodate her newfound stardom. So what was going on, Sydney? Okay, so this movie's made, I mean, it comes out in, I think it's March of 1985, but
2: it had been mm. made in 1984. And 1984 is the turning point year for her um she had already released an album um, in 1983 self-titled album and that had a few very big hits and a couple were big on mtv already including like borderline is a really good example so she was starting to she had started to gain traction on mtv which had itself only just started to gain traction because it did, there's there's sort of a, a rewritten history of MTV as like an immediate overnight smash when what mm. actually happened was it took a couple years to really get off the ground. Michael Jackson played a massive role in that change. Um, but you know, when MTV launches in 1981 and Madonna's very much trying to like find her break in New York City by this point. You didn't even have MTV available in Manhattan. Mm. So um, in 1984, she's started to appear on the network, which is great. Things are starting to work out. She makes that big declaration that she wants to rule the world. And then the film is made in like late summer, early fall. And it's in August that she performs like a virgin for the first time at the first ever VMAs. And that is oh. often thought of as her, like Ed Sullivan Beatles moment. Um, mm. And the funniest part of that story to me at least is that the song was not even out yet. So <laughs> because she was one of their big stars, Madonna MTV said, okay, we're gonna start doing this award show. We've never done it before. So we don't really, you know, know what's, what. It's if it's gonna work, which is pretty funny now. But um, perform something. Can you perform one of your MTV hits? And she was being like, quote unquote, difficult about it because Mm. she had this new song (laughs) that she'd written that no one had heard, um, which doesn't exactly make for the best on paper live performance, but she was very intent on performing it. And that was the one where she is dressed like a bride and rolls around on the floor and you, there's sort of like an upskirt shot. And yeah, the single didn't even come out for another month and a half. But so wow. by that point, fans had started to appear on the set of the movie and it just, it became something that it had not started as. Um, and then yeah, by, you know, New Year's, the Like A Virgin video has come out. The Like A Virgin album has come out. Um, it's a totally different ballgame. Like they're dealing with a very different, ostensibly, uh, you know, supporting actress who's now become the main name. It's like, it's now the Madonna movie instead of the Rosanna Arquette movie, which I think I've heard she was not entirely pleased through and through about because it was not supposed to be like that.
1: But yeah, hopefully that's a good snapshot of Madonna in 1984. I, I think for me the idea that like it's a nine and a half week shoot and you start out fine and and, and I mean this is a low budget, low to medium mm. budget, but on the lower end. And by the last week you were having to double your budget because you require so much security for your star who is now one of the biggest stars on the planet. And we're going to see something similar happen with Tina Turner in the next movie to kind of like propel that. But like how interesting, like what do you do as a filmmaker if oh by the way we now have one of the biggest stars on the planet in our in our movie i I
0: think because seidelman knew and i think saw the not only that that she was kind of an up-and-comer but that that she had this charisma because she was the one she like did a screen test with madonna and all the producers were immediately like yes uh and if anything the interesting thing i find about watching this is I think, I, I can't tell if it's a lack of confidence in her own acting or if it's direction, but I feel like Madonna actually plays it, like, a little uh, lower than you would expect from her. Like, she's not quite the Madonna character, you know? She's she's a little more chill uh, in her approach to everything. And uh, and I think that, so I think that Seidelman must have just been, like, I knew it was going to happen. Like, she maybe didn't know that she'd have to spend the extra money on it, but she probably It probably made her happy that Madonna was already being big because I think she knew that she could see that, you know? Uh, yeah. I mean,
1: this opened number one at the box office, mm. which is yeah. wild because, as we've discussed, 1985 is one of the best years in cinema, like, period. So, for this to rocket to the top, beating out stuff like, I mean, they were re releasing Ghostbusters, Back mm. to the Future was out there, Goonies, you name it. And this is just like pff, number one with a bullet for a, yeah. a double female lead. I mean, it's also directed by a woman, written by a woman.
0: Yeah. It's weirdly a, a kind of similar thing for Rosanna Arquette in, a, in an <laughs> independent film because she made this movie with John Sayles called Baby It's You which had a very small release it really was quote-unquote released in 1985 as her star grew but it had been around Hollywood and everyone's like oh this Roseanne Arquette is kind of the next big thing so by the time Uh, This movie comes out, she is also in Silverado, she's also in After Hours, which is weirdly like uh, Mm -hmm. a Desperately Seeking Susan companion piece, Mm -hmm. Uh, so yeah, she is like, she kind of weirdly goes from nothing to the lead in four or five major films in 1985, which is a little (laughs) crazy too.
1: That's ridiculous. I just, I love her so much. And I think it's one of those things people also don't realize that, like, she also has a really weird tie-in to pop music as well, being that both Rosanna by Toto and In Your Eyes are written about her. That's just wild to me. I don't think I knew sure. that.
0: Yeah, I didn't tell this uh, till we were oh. reading about this movie.
1: I mean,
2: there's also, I mean, all of pop culture is one big tree slash web, obviously, but, mm. you know... Tarantino for his first two feature films, uh, which obviously hadn't happened yet, seems sort of obsessed with Madonna in the years like 1983, 1984, because, you know, in Reservoir Dogs, he writes that Madonna into the story, even though we're at this point in like a different decade. And then in Pulp Fiction, (laughs) he does it again, where there's another Madonna reference, I think, this time to like the Lucky Star video. And I only mention that because that's also a Rosanna Arquette yeah. star and um yeah. it's like i mean this is not the reading to take away from this but it's almost like that same madonna was still haunting her
0: <laughs> you oh, know sure. like following yeah, yeah. her
2: like into her filmography and um yeah and that's another like interesting interesting like pop musicy connection i think with her
0: sure yeah i, I and i also think that there's interestingly like i actually didn't click in my mind the way that you said, like, they knocked it down from an R to a PG-13 to, like, allow kids in, is this movie is, like, very horny, and I think ed- yeah. edgy in a Madonna way, probably because they p- just kind of barely snip out, <laughs> like, she's lounging around in, like, sheer bras half the time, and, yeah, and it's like a pretty real, sexy movie.
2: There's, like, real nudity, there's, like, you know, mm-hmm. woman takes a bath, woman, rather, singular, takes a yeah. bath, and, like, she looks like it she's not like there's not bubbles that are perfectly perfectly placed the interesting thing about madonna like to know that she was sort of a rising star and was totally fine with the r-rated concept is that Mm -hmm. that would have been fine like she's the sort of personality who was not trying to like uh keep her image squeaky clean break in and then once she sort of had the cultural foothold start to act out at that point she was always sort of from the beginning trying to position herself as edgier. Um, And for that reason, like, nudity was never a concern for her. It was something that was just, like, uh, meant to kind of be a no-brainer. And that was something, you know, not to go, like, off on too much of a tangent, but because sexuality was something that started to be used against her um, Mm -hmm. as the decade progressed, it helped that she was sort of already – fine with it like you couldn't use something yeah. against her that she'd already aired out and that would happen yeah. i think it was 1985 so right after this movie comes out if i'm not mistaken that playboy and penthouse published like her nudes that she'd mm-hmm. taken when she'd first arrived in new york so that happened in the like immediate aftermath of this film's release i want to say and that's you know part of the reason it happens is because her star is rising in such yeah. a way um but yeah, she would totally have done this movie in R-rated mode.
0: Yeah, so. I mean, I'm I'm very curious to know, like, release the R-rated desperately really seeking season <laughs> guy. Because also, <laughs> when Someone's they're like, you know, this film is very inspired by, like, Jacques Rivette. You're like, whoa, what? <laughs> what were you trying to make? Like, what was this? It's it's a very yeah I don't know.
1: You read about the alternate ending of this, right? Yeah,
0: which is cute. And but I will say, I know, like the alternate ending, they're riding off on camels together on another adventure, right? That's the what we're talking about. Yeah, I do think that there is a level of that. As much as they're sad that that ending wasn't there, I, I, I do think the fact that it ends with them returning the earrings and like triumphally raising each other's hands does seem like they're buddies now. Like what matters is uh that roberta and, and susan are pals now uh it doesn't matter anything about the men <laughs> like who cares a- <laughs> aiden quinn is handsome but not that interesting
2: yeah like even with the revised version it didn't prevent this movie from you know having a kind of like queer reading to it and that's certainly mm. something, oh yeah you know, sure. i think it was in that interview that rosanna Arquette gave where she was expressing disappointment at the change she had referenced like thelma yeah. and louise um and the truth is that it's been written about in a not like super dissimilar way so
1: yeah
2: um yeah, I mean, it's
1: about a woman who's obsessed with another woman and, like, following her yeah. in New York, so... Well, and then even wanting to wear her clothes, oh, which yeah. is, like, as extremely intimate. Oh, and I like, mean, that's yeah, the next level. that's
0: where you see, like, the, the Jacques Rivette. Because when they're, like, it's inspired by that, you're like, is it? But that's, like, yes, try- wanting to become the woman, like, almost like a single white female sort of thing. But yeah. you're right, it's also a, a movie that c- gets that, I think, queerness by... And it's interesting because it's not a movie that necessarily easily passes like the Bechdel test, but because it's a woman obsessed with a woman, you kind of feel much more in the woman's world. And that the men are all these like hangers on that kind of don't make sense, regardless of the fact that there are a lot of men in the movie.
2: I hadn't realized until this most recent watch of it that at one point uh Hitchcock's Rebecca is playing on one of the oh. <laughs> one of the TVs. And that's of course like um a a movie about a woman living in the shadow of another woman um, who you never see, but is like omnipresent the whole time, nevertheless. And I think that's such a funny, like little wink that happens in this movie. Like here, we're going to put this movie in conversation with Hitchcock because this movie can be everything at once, you know?
1: (laughs) Well, I think that speaks to how, Culturally aware Susan Seidelman is. So her career is actually really interesting. So she uh gets out of film school, makes her first film called Smithereens, and somehow, just through absolute luck, ends up getting that movie into Can. And then she becomes I mean, this she enormous independent filmmaker. Up
0: Cannes. I love that story where she's like, I called them and they said, sure, submit your movie. Send yeah. it
1: on over. And then she she thought it was just gonna be playing like on like a side thing. And they were like, actually, no, we like this so much, we want it in competition. Are you cool with that? And she She was like, sure, why not? Next thing you know, she's got an age and she's having things pitched to her. And this is the first thing that gets kind of sent over to her. Unfortunately, her career sort of takes a dive because of after She-Devil, which was unfortunately universally reviled. I know it now has its defenders, Emily Gagnon, I'm talking directly to you. I (laughs) I would say it's my
0: favorite of hers. And I also think she's like a visual stylist like no other in kind of a crazy way, which this movie is a good example of.
1: This movie is the first thing I can think of as an actual 80s style movie. Like you've got the clothing, that club scene is so 80s, like with all of like the new waiver kind of things. But it like Madonna, I feel like she has such a great eye for the cool stuff that New York had that was going to then explode worldwide. So in the way that Madonna was bringing things like Voguing, here you've got uh, like all these different landmarks like the Danceteria is in this film, which unfortunately no longer exists. Um, she's also bringing in a bunch of um new york icons like anne carlisle who we talked about previously on the show yeah. is in this film rockets say, red glare is lots in it. of yeah. liquid
0: sky feels and i mean this is a year with like after hours and crush groove and the last dragon but this is the one that feels the most like you're in actual downtown new york and the actual kind of dirtiness <laughs> the, the ruined <laughs> couches on the side of the road and whatever yeah
1: now, before we go into our next movie, because we got to get moving on, um, Sydney, can you just kind of talk about Get Into The Groove? Because this is not the song that you would think would be the lead track for this, nor was it on the soundtrack.
2: Yeah, and it was not originally supposed to be for the movie. Um, there were there was a discussion happening about Madonna doing something for the movie, and she recorded a song that I believe was called Desperately Seeking Susan. I haven't heard it. Like, if there is a demo of it that exists, I have not heard it. Um It didn't get used, obviously, and instead she had this, you know, she was working on another album um, because it would come out in, I think it's November that it comes out, so of 84. She had this song called Into the Groove that ended up being A, in the film, and B, just like a smash hit. So when it comes time to start promoting this film, that's a really convenient thing that they have is they can smash a bunch of clips together and... That's something that can play on MTV, and that means mm-hmm. also by default that Susan Seidelman, like quote unquote, directed a Madonna video. But
1: <laughs> yeah. you know,
2: it was more of a, just like a, they tacked on that that job. But you know, some of like the eighties 80s, the eighties ness that you pick up on when you're watching this movie is, I think, to some extent, Madonna and her manner of dressing. But then some of it is mm. also like you know the whole music video as it relates to film world scholar in me would want to say. Some of what you're picking up on is uh, this beginning of like what's called an MTV aesthetic that's starting to
1: Mm.
2: bleed into the film world in a really interesting way. Like Flashdance, I think, is the first really good example of that in 83, where they can do the music video tie-in on MTV. But, um, you know, maybe this is a good transition into talking about Tina Turner is the fact that Tommy, um, Mm. which was like a Robert Stigwood masterminded thing was one of the first, yeah, there's this movement that happens largely, you know, with with Tommy and Saturday Night Fever, where the soundtrack becomes a massive marketing tool for blockbusters. And Into the Groove is a really strong example of that working out really well for for a film studio in the mid 80s. Um,
1: And of course, Tina Turner was in Tommy, so...
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I
1: also got the impression that there was weird stuff going on with the rights to all of Madonna's music, of what she could and couldn't use in films versus what she could release as a single and what and when. Like, this is the point where, like, the legal stuff, and not everybody finds the legal stuff interesting. I do. But, <laughs> but like, it's just, it, it, it's always interesting to me when artists will lose power of what they can and can't use their music for.
2: Yeah, there was some kind of licensing thing that prevented the song from being officially on the soundtrack so it doesn't get released as part of like a bigger body of work but it does end up getting released um on like a deluxe version or some kind of like addended version of of like a virgin the album so Uh. but you know even without like the potential of sales the mtv airplay that that video got was enough like it was you were gonna If, if you didn't want to go out and buy the single or buy the album, like you could just put your
1: TV on and you'd hear it several times that day. So. All right. Well, speaking of things that you will see on TV, possibly cut up into tiny bits, which is how I saw it and how I think Cam saw it, we're going to be heading into the Thunderdome. It's Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, and that's coming up after the break. It's a tragedy that Tina Turner hasn't appeared as an actress in more films. We've talked about her screen appearances twice in the podcast so far, the first, of course, being the recently discussed 1975 Tommy, where she plays the leggy acid queen, and her delightful cameo in 1978's Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. If you want to pick me up, go watch the last scene of that movie for an ebullient Tina. But if you haven't seen Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, you are missing a fantastic Tina Turner performance, both on the soundtrack and in the movie. Why we didn't see more of Tina on film, let alone more of Antianity, a solid entry for one of the best film villains of all time, will be something we cover today, for sure. That and which is George Miller's best pig movie, this or Babe? I
0: mean, Cam, you want to <laughs> enter the Thunderdome? Sure, I'll enter the Thunderdome. Uh, number, number one, I think, it's Babe. <laughs> Sorry. There's great pigs in this film, but uh, I think you can't beat Babe. Uh, there's a lot of pigs. Yeah. I think
1: they said there's like 600 yeah. pigs. It's a
0: lot of pigs. I mean, they're, they're great, but they're gross. Really? Uh, very baby's very just great, so yes. cute. It's very,
1: yeah,
2: it's big like, not. it's big cannibal vibes. You know, like, did you ever watch? Yeah, yeah. I kept yeah. Thinking, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. watching this this time around,
0: I was like, Ugh. sure, especially <laughs> when they they lower poor master into them. Yeah, I'm yeah. like, he's gonna get eaten. Um, but yeah, and I, 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 the other thing I think <laughs> worth saying that I, I'm sure we'll get into is I think what the it's not such a great tragedy necessarily because I think it's by choice that Tina Turner didn't act more because it sure seems like people mm-hmm. offered her stuff and we'll get into probably some of the. Uh, Offers of this year, which she turned down. But uh, yeah, so Max Beyond Thunderdome, as with most Mad Max movies, begins with Max uh, wandering the wasteland, uh, the post-apocalyptic Australia. Uh, this time he's run out of gas, People steal all his stuff, and he's forced to go into Barter Town, uh, which is run by Anti Entity, played by Tina Turner. Um, He makes a deal selling his skills because he's still a a quick draw shooter um, to her and then gets kind of involved in this interplay between her and uh the guys providing fuel master blaster which if you are not familiar is a small man riding atop the back of a big man uh, tina turner is mostly worried about blaster the big man who's incredibly strong uh master is the brains of the operation uh so she uh wants max to essentially trick him into fighting in thunderdome uh and killing blaster from there it's a very weird movie because there's kind of three very distinct acts uh, Tina Turner is of course uh, she's had, has other machinations she's do, pulling a real film noir plot on Max which pisses him off he ends up with a group of children who survived a plane crash who now uh, kind of they they don't really have knowledge but they have kind of a paradise so uh, Max decides to sort of recruit them into returning to Barter Town and, and, and getting his stuff back slash taking revenge on <laughs> Tina Turner slash they find a train uh, and then it all ends in a kind of classic Mad Max uh, train versus car battle to uh, eventually he's a good guy and wants to get these kids especially and as strangely master who he's grown fond of to freedom yes that's uh, that's about it. Because
1: Max is a good one. Yes. I love the machinations of all of the Mad Max movies, because the idea is you're looking back on a legend of something, but it's not actually revealed. It's the legend of the story until the very end. Mm. But you realize what you're seeing is a story that was told by someone, so all of the whack doodle stuff that happened is possible because it could just be hyperbole. Like, that's sure. really just kind of excuses everything you saw before you. It's a really interesting form of filmmaking and storytelling. Yeah,
0: I mean that's that's kind of the crazy thing with George Miller. I, I'm sure we'll get into it a bit this was obviously this is his third film which is also insane um it is uh his last uh, film developed with byron kennedy who is kind of what he considered the co-creator of mad max's producer byron kennedy passed away uh in a, a helicopter accident while scouting this film uh so it is a strange movie because uh it was one that George Miller didn't really want to make, uh, but felt that it was the only way to honor his best friend and collaborator and co-creator. So he got in a co-director and... He now it's interesting because we read these contemporaneous interviews that you brought up Becky that are very fascinating But George Miller said it's essentially like a blank space in his mind (laughs) Like he says he does not really remember. He can't really remember much of what he did uh, (laughs) Which is kind of wild like he was just on autopilot He literally got a co-director because he's like I am in such intense grief But I believe I have to complete this film which is very fascinating and and kind of why it takes so long to get back to Mad Max Is partially because it takes him a while to to meet his wife and then and then get a new collaborator in his wife wife who becomes a co-writer and editor and of course he works with uh, Eve Ansler, which we'll probably get into a bit later on but uh yeah it's a very fascinating movie uh it really shouldn't have happened even maybe more than Desperately Seeking (laughs) Susan it seems like a very unlikely film but but it works and like you say I think Tina Turner is a big reason why it works.
1: Well, let's get into Tina specifically here, Sydney. So where was Tina in her career? Like we talked a little bit about um, she had been in Tommy and like the 70s and by 70, 78 is, I believe, when she uh, divorced Ike and then kind of what happened. So
2: a way of summing up this story is that by the end of the 70s, Tina Turner has become kind of a nostalgia act. She's got way more to do. We would learn that she had way more to do. But at this point, she's sort of resigned herself to doing a lot of like Vegas shows. Um, She was appearing on TV with Cher and whatnot. Um, But she gets new management in like as the decade changes and then slowly but surely starts to pick up her career again. And she's one of those artists whose career predates MTV, of course, but then uses that new medium as a chance to, like, really revive herself. And she's in her 40s at this point. So 1984, the same way it had been a very big year for Madonna, was also a very big year for Tina Turner. She releases uh, that album Private Dancer, which is the song, the album that has What's Love Got To Do With It on it. And so she's 44 and the oldest female solo artist to top the Billboard Hot 100, which is not a small thing um, at all. And so Mad Max is not a star vehicle per se, but it is something that they use to sort of keep that wave going that they've already been riding. Um, But yeah, it's less that she's playing herself in this movie or where there's like some kind of commentary happening and more that i think she just was naturally i think maybe the role was imagined with her in mind yeah that's basically
0: it's one of those ones where they're like a tina turner type and they kind of keep writing with that until they're eventually (laughs) like do we just send it to tina turner and she's immediately like yes (laughs) and they go okay sure yeah. yeah, yeah, and it was, it, it's a very interesting, like I think you talk about when you're like, it's not about her. We One of the things we know is she was pitched to be the lead in The Color Purple and she turned it down because she said it was depressing. And I think specifically, The Color Purple is also about an abusive husband that beats you. And mm-hmm. it's like, maybe that's a little on the nose and a little not what she wants to do. Whereas I think even if you bring in all the baggage of Tina Turner, anti Entity is what she is after Ike you know it, it is a woman who talks about like i wasn't much before the the nuclear apocalypse but then i made myself who i am now so it's like a woman who remade herself who is powerful
2: it's true because there's like a sense of triumph to the role as opposed to tragedy mm-hmm. and i think the fact that that was something that george miller saw in her would have been very exciting and flattering for her at the time the ike narrative was one that sort of element this that side of their relationship was one that she technically i guess revealed at the beginning of the decade it had not been public knowledge mm. but it wasn't the um it wasn't like a not internet breaking obviously but like the equivalent of that in the early 80s yeah. it didn't become that until later in the decade when she published a book with Kurt Loder in i think 1986 and that was called I Tina so Mad Max happens before that but mm. what does start to happen on this press tour for Beyond Thunderdome is she starts getting asked about him in interviews. Mm. Um, so Mel Gibson's sort of just like sitting there politely waiting for Tina to be asked questions about her ex husband, who she's like, she's not brought into the conversation herself. Um, so it, it's a kind of like transitional moment, this movie between. Her being recast as some sort of tragic figure. She was still, Mm. she was still like, what she and this character have in common is the sense that they're kind of like seasoned survivors. I think it says, I think it's very interesting to talk about this in relation to Desperately Seeking Susan, because that's a 20 something star and this is a 40 something star. And these are two very different chapters that they're in the midst of. Um, Of course, in both senses, Uh, In both cases, there's a sense of, like, rebirth and, like, something new about to happen, but it's different, it's differently loaded and, and colored, I guess, for Tina Turner.
0: Yeah. I know George Miller also said a thing he really liked is how uh, she looked so young, but seemed so, like, had such an old wise soul so he's like you can't tell how old tina turner is and the way she talks sometimes you're like is this woman 65 <laughs> or is she but she like looks the same age as mel gibson so it's like uh, yeah you kind of have no idea what she's doing but he loved the way she was ageless which i i found kind of interesting
1: I also think what puts her up there in the pantheon of villains is you look at all of the villains of um, the whole series. So there's like, of course, Immortan Joe from uh, from um, Fury Road. Lord Humongous is Mad Max Two Road Warrior. Toe Cutter is Mad Max One. They all lose and they all die. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't happen with Annie Entity. Annie Entity wins and she lets him live. And it's very clear that she has made the choice to let him live. And you're like, you are one of the greatest bad yeah. guys. <laughs> like, There's so much power in that moment and that choice she makes. Like, it's ridiculous. I mean,
0: He has a weird, uh, deep... Again, I love just knowing that George <laughs> Miller is in this like fugue state when he's giving these incredibly deep interviews. <laughs> and he talks about like a Joseph Campbell concept I'd never heard of, which he, he says he loves her mad man which is somebody called the hold fast, which is like somebody who was heroic but essentially is uh, doesn't want change. So they are like so obsessed with keeping the world the way it is. Uh, and that's, I guess, what he says, like, it's often, you know, bankers. His bad guys are like business people in this wasteland. They're not mm-hmm. willing to adapt. And I think, yeah, so he loved that Tina Turner is the hero. Like, he's, it's like she's a hero. To many of these people, she is a hero. And and, and that Max kind of can see himself in anti anti-entity, anti-entity. And like, if he chose to not keep moving and perhaps become worshipped by these children or whatever, that he might become like her and that 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 ending op- offers a bit of hope that maybe maybe all of this was a lesson to anti-entity and perhaps she will uh, uh, do something different, but but who knows?
1: Well, much to do was made about when Furiosa came out comparing Furiosa to anti-entity, and one of the comments that they tried to nail George Miller to a tree for was that it's e- Furiosa could easily become anti-entity. And I can see that because he's talking about like the choices you have to make within this in order to maintain order in society. Perhaps you have to build a giant half geodesic yeah. dome and allow people to kill each other based on things, you know. So it, it is like when the when the world is lawless, how do you maintain order? And she figured out a way to do it. And she and but what makes her evil is that it's at all costs. And I'm going to feed you know a small person to a to yeah. a pig. Like it's not it's not so good. Yeah, it's
0: interesting. We also don't know quite what kicked off the feud uh, between Master Blaster and her and, and why maybe mm. she why she hasn't uh, elevated Master Blaster more. I think you have uh, a level of sympathy for Master Blaster even before you know, for instance, that Blaster is a, a Down Syndrome kid, basically. That, yeah, why is he living in the pig world? <laughs> why are the pigs all underground? Why do you not respect the guy who seems to actually help your city a lot so it's interesting that a lot of that is left up to interpretation which i think lets her get off a bit scot-free for say <laughs> murdering that kid at one point
1: <laughs> i do love that someone of course someone took the time to pause what like the the wheel of consequence things were and it's death hard labor acquittal which is on there gulag Auntie's Choice, Spin Again, Forfeit Goods, Underworld, Amputation, Life Imprisonment. should I'm we like, all pick wow, which one we'd like to the
0: I mean, Auntie's <laughs> Choice uh, seems like it's just going to be Gulag, so I, I don't know.
1: <laughs> well, my thing is I'm like Gulag, Hard Labor, and Life Imprisonment are interchangeable. I, mean, I, think, I, think, I think that's like, probably that's a joke
0: similar. in and of itself, yeah. I think I, I personally I don't know. would it's... go for acquittal. <laughs> yeah, sure. touche. Touche. I mean, he, uh, Max has no goods at this point, so w- whatever. It's true. <laughs> he should just be fine.
1: He's got those luscious locks. Oh, I'm sure someone
0: would yeah. want those at some yeah, point. It's, uh, it's a fascinating movie. And I mean, yeah, it's, uh, look, at the time, it's very interesting to see him talk about how he struggled with thinking of uh, uh, ever having a woman lead in this universe. And to know that, like, it took kind of collaborating with his wife and then uh, especially he knew, like, he at the time even says that sexual assault is, you know, it's in Mad Max 1. It's a primary part of this universe. Uh, And that's why he worked with Eve Ensler to, like, try to be like, how can I address sexual assault without creating a traumatic film for survivors of sexual assault? Which is so strange to call up the vagina monologues lady and be like, "Hey, uh,
1: hey!" If anyone has done extensive research, it's even. we yeah, I, I can mean, say sure. It's, it's
0: so weird, but it, yeah, it, but it's it's interesting because I do think he produces a very interesting woman character uh, where sexuality is not a part of it in, in this necessarily beyond her being sexily draped in chainmail, of course.
1: Yeah, like. You know how much that thing weighed? 120 pounds. That is an 120 pound piece of costume. I mean, she's a muscular
0: woman. I'm not surprised, I guess.
1: She's, do you know how tall Tina Turner is? You must know this, Sydney. Well, is it going to be
2: taller than I think? Shorter than I think, I guess. I'm guessing is what you're going to.
0: Because,
1: okay, tell me, tell me. She's, are you ready? (laughs) She's five four. The woman is five four, which is for me sits in that like bet midlarian thing where you forget how sm- like you don't realize how small she actually is until she's standing next to like Nicole Kidman. Mm. Like it's it's because they have so much power and so much presence. They're so big on screen that you're like, oh no, you're mm. weak. Yeah, it's the legs. Like you would never like watching her perform. I like funny right. enough.
2: Separate to this, spent like the whole week for work uh, immersed in like Tina Turner performing <laughs> footage uh. and, and like I. <sighs> I do think this role was a natural, like, uh, extension of this sort of athleticism, commanding presence Mm. she had. I love the things that they do in this movie to make her not just, like, she woke up one day and she was bad and she's violent and, like, that's all her character is. Like, they do interesting things, like, make her, like, an appreciator of culture and, um, Mm. yeah. I mean, like, her being... It's not like her being a villain, quote unquote, in this movie prevented her from being like um, an iconic, I emu- like a character that people would want to emulate later. Like I know when in like 2011, when Beyonce's Run the World video came out, she did sort of a post-apocalyptic thing that got a lot of Mad Max comparisons. It, the, the movie, like the, the name of the franchise itself was dropped a lot in writing. But what mm. I think a lot of writers were missing is that it's a specifically Tina Turner in Mad Max thing that she was trying to yeah. like emulate. Um, but yeah, I always think of it like, cause there's the one scene with the violin and it's like so clean and compared to the rest of the movie, which feels very like stereotypically this universe um, You just get this like random, like, Oh, I'm up here listening to, classical like nice to meet you like
0: (laughs) and her, her saxophone player at the start too it's very yeah and i mean i think that there's something to be said especially with the music videos like she I'm sure you have the choice when you're Tina Turner to do a music video fully in the outfit you're in (laughs) for anti-entity. And she does two different music videos where she never dresses like Tina Turner. She's, she's anti-entity in both of those music videos. And then she'll also bust it out. You see, there's some concert footage uh, where she'll later in her career bust out more or less the outfit, which I think is kind of fun too.
2: Yeah. She obviously enjoyed being in the film and like, uh, all the on set anecdotes suggest that she was down to, to sort of do anything like she was not concerned about shaving her head which she did for this film like she was there to be in the movie and it doesn't seem
1: like there was much of an ego thing that was happening. Nah they taught her how to drive stick oh. for this so that she could do a bunch of her own stunts but George Miller had to be like okay we can't let you do these ones because <laughs> yeah. you will die and insurance will not I, let us do it but I, you can do
0: this I, and that's we, we talked previously about shooting in Australia before and I was fascinated there was a behind the scenes documentary and th- when we talked about the flies in Australia there's a behind the scenes documentary where she's talking and she just tests these flies all over and she's like could not be bothered and I'm like wow for a lady who like lives in a Swiss castle now for her to, for her to just be <laughs> So down for this is like yeah. fascinating. Well, she'd
2: just been through worse, and this was like, this was
1: you know, yeah, paradise exactly. by comparison. Yeah.
0: <laughs> That's kind of her vibe, yeah.
1: Everything I've heard about working with George Miller though is that it's a good, they're reasonably good sets. They're mm. safe. We talked about um the Australian exploitation film industry last season on our final episode. Um and from a, like a number of people died because like if you watch Australian uh, exploitation movies, they are bananas. They are extremely violent. They're all over the place. The stunts are incredible, which is what they became known for. But a lot of people passed away. People were very seriously injured. And the worst injury that happened on Mad Max was someone severely broke their leg, which is like a Stunt that happens, a th- mm. thing that happens to stunt people that is fairly regular. That's like a known risk. But no one, no one was like permanently injured. So it seems like his sets are relatively safe. They're relatively, um, and I, I mean, you're watching people do these actual things, which is also why I think Mad Max Fury Rhodes broke so many people's heads. Is by that point we were not used to people doing those levels of practical stunts. Sure.
0: Yeah, and I mean, the, the, the stunts at the end of this are a, a whole lot of fun, too. I mean, you're seeing all, all everyone kind of in on it at all level of... It, it. The only thing is it, it kind of feels like it's prepping for what you will, will eventually see in Fury Road. The silly, fun movie it's the lightest of all the mad maxes by far like i say not
1: that's why fans didn't yeah. like it that's why they didn't make one for so long is because fans were like where is our brutal world that we had in one and two that we don't have here And this is so much more gooniesy it got like- a lot of sure. like
2: unfavorable peter pan kind of comparisons like lost boys like there's too sure. much lost boys here this needs to be more like you know oof. i also think it's it's interesting the way that like It's an in between moment for Mel Gibson and Tina Turner. Like Mm. they, they both would go on to have careers, uh, like movie careers slash movie adjacent things happen that were so much of a bigger deal, arguably than this movie. I guess it's like so. When
1: does Lethal Weapon comes out? Lethal Weapon is 87. He's two
0: years. Yeah, afterwards. He's kind of like the, the kind of sort of crossover he has is The Year of Living Dangerously mm. before this with Sigourney Weaver. But you're right. He's still not. He's not he's like you know, he's, Mel Gibson. He's known
2: for
1: these movies at this huh. point, right? And I think... Mm for the most part, just these Gallipoli movies. Gallipoli is the um, other one that he yeah. was kind of like, at that point, he became a name, but Mad Max was, and it, Mad Max also wasn't known as Mad Max in the United States. Like the, the it hadn't actually been released under that title. Like the first one barely got a release and the second one was released as The Road mm. Warrior, not as Mad Max, The Road Warrior. Mm. So people didn't know it was part of a trilogy. So then this comes, or a, a series, and then this one comes out. So you're also dealing with a bit of that going on. Of like, sorry, who is Mad Max? Is this part of a trilogy? What is going on? Yeah. Right? I
0: think he was kind of the. Reliable, handsome guy who could be in your movie that we're, you're <laughs> like, okay. Um, I think that's why they cut his hair in this one, too, because it's like, we got to get him back to that handsome, clean-cut he fellow he is.
2: Yeah, when I saw him um, at the beginning of the movie, I was like, he better not look like
1: this <laughs> when this movie ends.
0: Yeah, yes, if I'm going to sit here yeah. with
1: these pigs, this has got to change. I don't know. I think what George Miller gets best is that kids are terrifying and dangerous, and I love so much that kid coming out to, to like take them down, and he's like... <laughs> It makes me so happy. I love that kid. Yeah,
0: it is. The kids are cute. I mean, uh, Master, who is played by a guy from Freaks, Todd Browning's Freaks, which is kind of wild Mm -hmm. to give that guy a light in life boost. He he's quite fun when he turns up as like a little professor at the end. <laughs> he's now like a nice guy that's helping them out. I I think it's a yeah, it's an interesting movie. It's kind of a mishmash too. Both of these movies, uh, like I think, are very interesting and good good movies in their own ways. But you might need to come at them with a little uh, interest and knowledge and something beyond pure entertainment brand what do you think
1: cuz you hadn't seen the other two sydney uh, you'd seen fury road but not one or road Ro- warrior i see yeah, i've seen like
2: fury road a couple of times and then with the like the mel gibson trilogy i'd seen probably bits of the first one on tv but this was my first mm. tina turner was already like my entry point into this movie because of i guess yeah. it was last year that tina the big hbo doc came out and this was part of that as just being like one of the big things that was part of her Revival, but yeah, for me the draw was not necessarily Mel Gibson or <laughs> Fair. the the franchise to begin with.
0: And it is kind of a weird one if you're, especially if you're coming for Tina, <laughs> because Tina does leave for a, a good chunk of the movie. She
2: does, but before she yeah. does, she gets to say very funny things. Like I appreciated that she got some like one liners um, in here. Oh, I don't
0: know anything about methane.
2: You can shovel shit, can't you? I guess it was in the early nineties that she starts to become a more like her, her life story obviously gets made after this movie. Mm-hmm. And so she, she yeah. kind of reenters the film industry as in a more like sort of production kind of role um, where it's like her life that's been put to screen. And that was the thing that really changed her image. So if um, people already saw her as a sort of uh tumultuous figure that had had a troubled past that was something that happened permanently at that point and yeah. then it's really interesting because of that to go back and read you know that she was cast because she was seen as this positive figure mm-hmm. because it's such a it's an in, really interesting in between moment there where it's actually so untrue now that she took off and like sort of exiled herself from the public eye because it was not she was not finding that she was able to move past this this reputation that she had there have been really notable exceptions like she is a really um strong triumphant figure she's known for like commanding a stadium full of thousands and thousands of people um but she was never really able to escape this thing that she had never really done to herself in the first place Mm -hmm. that Mm. makes sense so um sure Yeah, I think the quote, I think it was Miller who was like, you know, the core of her was a very
1: positive thing. Today's hero is tomorrow's tyrant, I guess is the quote. That's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that he wanted someone with that, like, strong, central thing that you would immediately be able to identify with, which makes her an even better villain, right? Right.
0: Yeah. And I think that's also what makes this role stand out. Uh, for her other roles, because like a- Acid Queen obviously is an amazing performance, and that's a song she's taken on, but it's basically just that <laughs> she comes in and out of the uh you know uh, Iron Maiden, and, and that's it. And then her other, only other real fictional performance is she's briefly the mayor and The Last Action Hero, which seems like it's probably just a favor to Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> or something. I don't know. uh So yeah, it's interesting because so this kind of stands as her biggest acting. Uh, role where she plays tina turner in a lot of stuff and a lot of tv shows and things uh but uh where she has fun there's nothing wrong with that but yeah it's it's interesting because this is like a, a, yeah, a really good role and and works very well for her and yeah, yeah i she mean it's kind of her one and done i
2: respect the like selectiveness you know because the alternative mm-hmm. can
1: be a bit mm, <laughs>
2: <laughs> sure.
1: can be a bit of a mess On that note, uh, we should end this episode. We've had such a... I've had a great time. I'm going to speak for both of you. You've both had great times as well. (laughs) That's my anti-entity coming out. Um, Just one more quick piece of trivia before we go. I tracked down the jacket from Desperately Seeking Susan uh, to find out what happened to it. And one of them is lost. The One of them that Patricia Arquette had is lost. She gave it to Peter Gabriel's daughters who I think may have donated it to charity and it's gone. But the second (laughs) one uh, ended up at auction. Do you know how much it went for. I do not. Ninety thousand dollars US. Wow! I know.
0: Good looking jacket. It's a great looking jacket
1: like... with a lot of cachet. <laughs> All Fair. right. Uh Cameron Maitland, thank you so much for joining us once again. It's always a pleasure.
0: Yeah. Thanks. And yeah, like I say, if if people want more uh Susan Seidelman, she she has quite a few films and especially between Desperately Seeking Season and uh She Devil, it looks like she is working that visual style. So if you like Desperately Seeking Season try to dig up some of her other stuff because she's a she's a very unique director
1: 100 yeah i was looking at some of her stuff i'm like this looks really cool she also directed the pilot of sex in the city so she which means that she set mm. the tone for one of the biggest shows of the 90s 2000s so good for her sure. uh sydney urbanek thank you so much for joining us it was such a pleasure having you thank you for having me this was very very fun i got to talk about two of my
2: <laughs> you know usual su- uh, suspects slash slash subjects um, yeah, this was good. This was good, and it was a great excuse to rewatch these movies. So.
1: <laughs> you okay. don't need an excuse, Sydney. Just anytime you want. <laughs> <laughs> uh, why don't you tell yeah. people where they can read your work and and see more of you? So the good one stop
2: place to go would be my Twitter because I'm chained to the platform, um, <laughs> and yeah, through there I do write a newsletter um, called Mononym Mythology. Uh, but yeah, everything really gets posted to Twitter, so that's where you're gonna find.
1: All the other links to all the other places I'm chained to as well. Awesome. What's your handle on that? Sid Urbanek. All right. And you can join us in two weeks where everybody is kung fu fighting or Kata ing because it's Jim Kata and The Last Dragon. And we're going to be joined by Graham Clark and Dave Shumka. That's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and the series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen, on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at HollywoodSuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland. Today's episode featured Cameron Maitland and Sidney Urbanek as guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagnier. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you in a couple weeks.